when I was a kid, Saturday mornings were about X-Men. And I don't think you have any idea how excited I am to be having this conversation right now. It's happening, people. Welcome to the Ex-Wife Podcast. I'm Alicia. And I'm Justin. And today we have Eric and Julia Leewald here to talk about the art and making of X-Men the Animated Series. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Alicia. We're happy to be here. Oh, my goodness. We are thrilled. We've been... So you all know a little bit about Justin and I and our relationship to the X-Men. Justin is a longtime, lifetime X-Men fan comics, movies, books, TV shows, animated series, action figures, whatever X-Men happens, Justin loves it. I didn't really get introduced to many things X-Men until the movies and never read a comic before in my life. And then we started this podcast so that Justin could give me an X-education. X-Ed, I like to call it. X-Ed. And, um... I, because I liked, you know, I love the movies. I love all things nerd, but uh, I didn't really dive deep into the comics themselves until we started this podcast. And this particular show, Justin would watch it and it would be on in the background. And then all of a sudden I was like, okay, now I'm hooked and I need to watch every episode. She, she learned the cadence of the theme song subconsciously and then would start to sing her own lyrics. Oh. oh, yeah, I have lyrics. Oh, They're yeah. really top-notch. <laughs> <laughs> but who among us hasn't, to be honest? You know? Right, exactly, exactly. Shout out, quick shout-out to Ron Wasserman, the gentleman who made that, wrote that theme song for X-Men, who never gets enough credit, and also wrote the theme song The Power Rangers. And it's like, my God, did he drill himself into the brains of a whole generation? So wow, shout out. Really. Same guy. Yes. Wow. Rounds, awesome. rounds, multiple rounds of I, applause. I can sing both of those theme songs <laughs> from memory. Yeah. That's amazing. Power Rangers, that I was that I was up on. So before we get like deep into the show itself, we just want to have you both tell our listeners a little bit about what your jobs of showrunner, series writer, what that job entails before we get into the specifics of the show. Well, I'll, I'll jump in because uh, I was a writer on the show and that meant that uh, in the early stages of, at the beginning, the first season, uh, it was everyone kind of looking at each other going, well, what, what stories are, what stories are going to be told in this whole brand new world of X-Men that's being taken from 30 years of comics and hopefully translated successfully to the TV <laughs> And that meant quick, you know, learning a lot of characters, learning a lot. But then specifically as a writer, there was a lot of pitching of ideas of stories to the guy who was the showrunner who turned out mm-hmm. to be Eric. Yeah. And then uh, being assigned a story. And then once, once you get the idea or the kernel or the go ahead on a particular story, it was okay you know, flesh out a premise, then flesh out your beat outline, flesh out your outline, write a first draft script, get your notes, go back. So it, it, once once the story, the magic seems to be in coming up with the kernel of a story that's mm. that's correct for, for that's, whatever. That's the, hard, that's the hardest part, <laughs> yes. for sure. Yeah. And, and the rest, most of the 
I mean, we had a mixture of writers. Some of them were, it was their first professional job. Some of them, we had over the 76 episodes uh, that I supervised, there were 20 different writers, Julia. Wow. And sometimes people didn't quite get, person, you give a person a shot, they didn't quite get the show, or they do two or three and they were great, but then another show would hire them. We could never, we were in this slightly different, uh, more working class corner of Hollywood where we they don't give us a staff of writers. It's kind of top down. The head of Fox, the main Fox people, uh, Margaret Lesh, whose show it really was. It was her uh, baby from the, you know, for 10 years she tried to get on the air and she made it happen. Her right hand man, Cindy Eyewater, who was the guy on the ground who read every word we ever wrote uh, and gave us notes on it. Um, those two picked me to kind of, okay, as a, someone that's like a developer or a foreman, say, okay, well, we, we need 13 episodes. They need to be similar enough to seem like they're part of one series. They need to be all very different, so you're not repeating yourself. And then, okay, come here's 29 X-Men that have been in the comics for 30 years. Here's the idea of the X-Men. Figure out what you want to do with it. And so Mark Edens and I sat down and figured out what we thought were the strongest parts of the comics because we didn't, neither of us knew the comics. That's so it's kind of, it dropped in our lap and said, okay, you got a week. Figure out what you want to do with this world and what the first 13 stories are going to be. And that was with the caveat that there will only be 13. Probably. probably. And none, none of us were signed for more than the first year. We were all let go <laughs> as soon as we're done with the first year. We oh, all my goodness. Work yeah. Because. X, there were had been no X-Men movies. They just people in Hollywood just didn't think that this superhero thing would work. It just Marvel we Marvel stuff doesn't work on TV. Forget about it. But in any case, so we from the story editor standpoint, you create the world at the beginning and then with along, you know, in conjunction with the artists who are drawing it all. That's Will a big Will Minio, Larry Houston were the two main guys uh, from the beginning. And and both of them, to their credit, were X-Men Marvel fanboys. They, they were they fan, knew it They knew it every inch of this world, and they're the reason that it feels so comic booky. And Mark and I barely knew comics, but what we knew, we'd been writing TV stories for years. We loved heroic story. When we were in college together, we programmed movies, we programmed war movies and westerns and epics and heroic dramas and and so uh we would like to laugh too but that was our 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 real our wheelhouse was heroic stories and so we got thrown in and we had all the artists and those people and a guy from marvel who was our advisor bob harris who was wonderful keeping us true to the canon but all of our focus that first year and then as we went further was what are the most uh, compelling stories we can make given these characters, given the, the setup. And that was the only thing in our head when we started. We didn't, you know, did we have, we didn't have favorite, favorite, favorite issue, comic issues because we hadn't read them. We didn't have, oh, you know, I really am dying to tell that Jean Grey story where she does such and such. Mm -hmm. um, so it just was, okay, this is everything I can find out about Wolverine. What is the coolest story I can tell with there? Everything I can find out about Rogue. Let's sit down and think up a story like when she thinks she can get out of being a mutant. Okay. Or we started that with which of our group of seven or eight folks would most likely give up their mutancy if they had the option. And so we built that story around Rogue. Those kind of human challenges. It all starts, it all started with the characters. Mm -hmm. So yeah. long story short, the story editor 
is kind of like is the supervisor that has to make sure that all the stories are doing what they should be. Some people write more. I mean, the writing part's fun, but over 76, there's only one or two I took a writing credit on because that either meant that the one of them was just was they they tossed the script. And since we didn't have any extra money to pay another writer, we'll just figure it out. <laughs> who's going to do it for free? Well, okay. Yeah. But basically, 95% of my focus was making sure everybody else's work was right and consistent and that all the people like Marvel and Fox who and the artists who actually had to draw the stuff and the producers who actually had to make it work for the, our modest budget, that all those people were happy with every every scene with every bit of every bit of dialogue if it was our network censor she couldn't just have us you know have an r-rated you know cartoon for kids right. it's saturday morning and a shout out to her her name's avery coburn and Wonderful. without avery coburn the show wouldn't have made it on air because go back in time we're talking 1992 there were three major networks and abc nbc cbs and fox kids was trying to make it was trying to sort of bust through that wall but there are broadcast standards and practices, as especially stringent in the world of children's programming. Mm -hmm. And if Avery Coburn and Margaret Lesh you know, weren't in sync and didn't understand. She liked the book. She knew the book. So she that's why she let us do something similar in tone and focus. And mm -hmm. as adult as the books were, mm -hmm. right. worked on 40 some different shows each. And I'd say oh, seven yeah. out of 10 uh, broadcast standards people that you're given say, oh, well, you can't, you can't do all that stuff. It's for children. We, we had, I had a Popeye show where we, when I was at Hanna-Barbera early in my career, where the first note we got, oh, you can't have Popeye and Bluto hitting each other. You can't just, that's, that, oh, that, not, on, not on television. So why did you want to do it? You know, Popeye. What else but, is there? And yeah. then now my nieces watch shows where like young children murder each other, no problem. So, oh. <laughs> but, but so anyway, we had a great person. So, long story short, I was responsible for choosing uh, the writers to work with me, which is one, which is a wonderful thing to do. Sometimes they're more assigned to you. In this case, I got to pick people I worked with before, and so uh, if the writers really got it and they weren't stolen away by another show, uh, that was paying better, uh, they would do eight, ten episodes so some of those guys really just got on a roll uh as other people would do fewer julia got her own show and bore a couple kids so during during the <laughs> during the highlight of x-men that's why she only wrote two episodes because, but pitched Beauty and the Beast. yeah and pitched the third one that sold and was there you know helping along the whole way the whole five years it had to be a fly on the wall at the very least but yeah. she had she had other responsibilities <laughs> to other series and so was only able to you know, get it, and it's just something you balance when you're when you're running the show. Uh, it's it's like being a coach, and half your team's injured, or you know, somebody mm -hmm. to another college. Oh, you got somebody new. You just have to make do each week with who you've got. And we ended up with some really nice people writing for us. That's awesome. It makes me like when I read in the book that you all had no idea about the like the comics themselves before. I was like, yes, my people, <laughs> I understand you. I was so I was like, I'm not alone. I could be a successful X fan if they can do it. I can do it. There you that leads us into our next question. You get that call for X Men. It's a complete unknown. 
you have to meet with Stan Lee in the morning. What's that like? What's what's the how now was the whole world of Marvel Comics an unknown or just specifically the X-Men or just the X-Men? I'd I'd read, you know, when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, I had, you know, uh, Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, a few others. So I I knew I I knew the, the Marvel world a little bit, but um this was such these were such wonderful people to work with at Fox that I would have told any lie. It's like you know the 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 actor that says, "Oh, you can ride horses, can't you?" Oh yeah, sure. Of course I, I can. I love riding horses. Yeah, I speak and French. You, <laughs> and you have to learn it really fast before you know the first day of filming starts. Um, so I had done enough TV shows so that I was really comfortable with the kind of show you know, boys action adventure they call it, which is kind of sexist. But um, there was that. And there was, I mean, I saw what it was. I thought, what a great, what a great property. So I wasn't really nervous. I should have been much more scared going in. But um, I was just more like anxious to keep my mouth shut because, and, and luckily everybody there was willing to talk about themselves. I mean, there was some really, you know, uh, between Haim Saban and Stan Lee, and the, the network people and the other Marvel people. and Everybody else, you know, everybody was very excited about it, but they thought it could be a cool show. But uh, so I was able to just kind of smile and nod and say, oh, yeah, I can't wait to, to write the show Bible about this thing. And to be all about what the, this X-Men show is going to shape up like. And then sneak off on the side and just grab the artist and say, tell me about these characters. Come on, hurry. And yeah. so, that, so I would maybe a little bit of arrogance or just look excitement this is, this is too good to screw up i yeah, yeah. excitement and i'm here man and there's no way you can trick me into uh, revealing the how ignorant i am of this property yeah it's that yeah. like performer like fake it till you make it mentality like i've got oh, it i totally got it yeah and, and yeah. that idea of like the two of you had worked on other shows you have other experience that you can leverage into this project so it's not like you're and and to your to your notes about how many other people were involved with the show and just kind of calling out these other names it really was a village of people that came together to make this become a thing oh yeah which is which is not necessarily the usual thing this was um a lot more chiefs than oftentimes when we've had work in the past it's just been oh hannah barbera decides to do a show and they do a show and it goes into syndication you got like one person to talk to or we're at Disney and Disney decides, uh, well, we're going to fill up the Disney afternoon with four or five series, 65 episodes each mm -hmm. here. You write Chip and Dale for a year, Julia, mm -hmm. and just kind of get into it. And you'll have, there'll be a, one person there in the office that she'll take notes from and he'll deal with if there are these, but it was basically a single entity in charge. There was this whole group of people and we had to kind of figure out who was the person most in charge and it ended up it was the fox people they owned it this is a, impossible to imagine for marvel right now but fox had the final cut if they liked an episode if they uh that we did and marvel hated it marvel could say could you please change it but as as fox happy fox to say no we like that episode next and so oh marvel, marvel got a fee and they got obviously a billion dollars of merchandise out of the show but as far as creative control, it was Fox's show. It was the television network show. And they were our boss, my immediate boss. 90% of my time was spent 
focusing on a making the show good, but b making sure it was good in their eyes. Mm. Margaret Lesh, who was president of Fox Kids, the newly created yeah. broadcast uh, network there, had worked for 10 years prior to that time at Marvel Productions out in Los Angeles. She was a she worked for Marvel. She was a big Mark, Marvel with fan. With Stan, you know, all the stuff. So they tr maybe one reason she got this good deal with them because they trusted her. They knew mm -hmm. she had the best interests of the characters at heart. She'd been trying for years to get one of the other networks to put an X-Men show on the air. And it... And Nobody, nobody, nobody bit. So when she became, when she was in the position as Fox Kids TV president, it was like, her. I think I recall her saying there were two edicts. We're going to do a Batman show and we're going to do an X-Men show. And those are going to happen. And here we are. Yeah. Batman one was easy. They've just been a huge movie hit. That's so, true. So the, her, true. her boss at Fox, the head of the network, the whole network, got that. But he looked at these X-Men scripts and said, this stuff's so adult. I, I mean, I don't get it. How can we, you know, our advertisers are going to sell cereal on this? What? Uh, and so it took her a couple months to talk her own boss into letting her do this. And he said, Man, you know, if you fall on your face on this, you're out of here. And it was literally her job on the line mm -hmm. to get him to give permission to do the X-Men show. But she made it happen. Yeah. So awesome to to work with people who just really believe in something and everyone just puts like so much passion into it. You know, like you were talking about, well, someone, they threw out an episode. So someone's got to write it. And it's like, you have this like passion to do it. You're like, well, we got to make this happen. So I'm going to write it. Cause I got, I got to get it done. And just that feeling of just amazing satisfaction when it comes together and you're like, yes, we did it. All yeah. the blood, sweat and tears was worth it. And we didn't know. I mean, there were a lot of times along the way there where uh, there's so much delay when you're doing hand-painted, you know, every cell is hand-painted mm -hmm. uh, uh, animation. It takes about nine months from the time you say, okay, we're going to do that uh, Beauty and the Beast episode. Okay, great. Signed off on. It's about nine months till it's completed between the writing, the drawing, the animating, the voicing, the editing, the music, and everything. And so we had to finish all the scripts and go on to our next job before we saw a foot of animation. Oh man. So it's nowadays it's so computerized, you know, you can, South Park can do an episode in two days if, right. if they want to. Uh, but it was, it was, there was a lot of faith involved in that <laughs> telling all these people who weren't quite sure about the direction you were taking the show. Yes. Believe us, believe us, believe us. You're going to, you're, you're going to make your money back. You're not going to, we did it right. We promised just, Wait six months and you'll see, which is a hard thing to tell business people yeah. uh, or, or just nervous uh, colleagues. Mm -hmm. And we just have, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, you got to believe in it or you just don't do it. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, the time it takes to do something, y'all had two weeks to get 13 episodes ready. That's like an episode a day. Like, how yeah. do you even begin to prepare for something that, like that when you have to also do research that was a that was a big dive in the deep end thing um uh and to be fair we just basically had to have the basic simple i mean it's the hardest part is coming up with the basic idea for something right. uh, yeah. a, a blind girl falls in love with beasts you know the just the basic idea is the hardest part and so what we did is we were given 
uh, Will Minio, who knows these things back and forth, gave us basically the pilot story idea, which came was based on three or four of the, uh, the books where he tried something similar with Pride of the X Men, didn't work very well. But with a young new X uh, person mutant comes in and is thrown into this strange world, and that the audience learns the world along with her, which is a great setup for a pilot. I mean, it's really strong. So we have that. And we have an agreement that it needs to be the Sentinels that are the, the main bad guys through this first season. And for us, that's an animation thing. We got in trouble. There's a guy at Marvel that didn't like that. And we had to have the argument. He wanted Magneto. And we said, no, you understand. If we don't have something inanimate, if we don't have something that's not a person, Wolverine can't even scratch anybody. Right. It's a kid so, show. so animation, if, if you want, Oh. If you want to have your main character be able to use his power, you we need robot adversaries to start Plus, with. you need a giant robot toy right. after. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And third, we wanted to establish, the more important thing to us was establishing the difference between the mutant community and the human community. And if you got Magneto as the main bad guy, then it's intermutant. If you mm -hmm. got, you've got the, 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 the Sentinels, then you've got a human conspiracy to suppress mutant kind as your central focus. And that was really important to us. So Magneto is a crucial character, but we needed to make the Sentinels the bad guy for the first season. So we had the first two parts for the two, two episodes. We knew the, the last episode would be defeating the Sentinels in some way. Episode 13, 13. of that season. Yeah. So we, we had to figure out 10 in between. And there were a couple things that in sitting around was okay we need to uh introduce magneto so three and four are basically uh this is another main guy know him and then there we got wanted to meet uh uh, uh we had that rope apocalypse and we wanted to you know, there were three or four things we had that okay we got to tell a story of, we want to establish storm as a really strong character so we made sure to okay how do we show off her uh, uh claustrophobia well it's mm -hmm. telephone so and we did this even more the second season just pick it as a character what can we do to show them more about the inside of that person so that's how we picked some of those some of those stories and again it, it all came down to the, the human side of it in the fact that it wasn't that storm has this incredible power which she does but that as a person you know as as, as storm as aurora she she suffers from claustrophobia and, and that, that makes it so much more relatable to people in the same way you know rogue hey she's got the coolest powers but she can't touch anyone and i've said this before if everyone swapped powers if wolverine had rogue's powers he'd be happy he'd go off and live in the woods and he wouldn't have to touch anybody ever again and she would have these magnificent claws and this healing ability but she'd be able to touch people you know it's like everyone who's swapped them all around they'd all be happy and <laughs> Sad that's not the horrible way yeah. right but isn't that that's also so relatable for for people right because it's yeah. there's like the grass is always greener right you're always wanting what someone else has and so that then makes it relatable and then also for kids it's like the underlying message of you know just because you're an awesome superhero doesn't mean you don't have struggles in your life too so there's that connection that helps build you know well-rounded humans let us hope so. Let us hope so. Here we yeah. are a few years later going, hey, all right, you turned out okay. You know? yeah. <laughs> From young people. Yeah. And and truly, I think one of the reasons we're talking about X-Men this many years later is because the decision from 
from that early day when it was you and Mark Edens at our dining room table in our small home, <laughs> you know, playing with pieces of paper going, what next, what next? But setting up a, a world where humans for a whole degree are legitimately a little concerned that suddenly other humans are developing these mutant powers. And you have within the mutant community, a whole range of reaction to that reaction. And yeah. uh, the, the other, the difference, the, you know, the, the, the prejudices put on that, I think made it, has made it stick in terms of something we can turn to and say, come on, we can all, please be nice to each other. It shouldn't be this hard. Yeah. There's just so many themes that people still identify with and that still resonate with them. I so, think if anyone to go through adolescence or puberty, right. that to the yeah, feeling like an outcast, feeling like you don't belong or fit in. Yeah, exactly. That happens as an adult also. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Regularly, but it's oh. fine because we know there are folks like us. <laughs> yeah. So. Talking about the that ideas of the the bigger concepts that resonated with with you or resonated with the the team. What what stuck out to you as you were doing that research, as you were getting prepared to to pick out those threads? What was interesting? What characters really caught your eye or arcs that you were initially drawn to? I want to say uh, again, when you were handed the the torch, there had been already thirty years of X Men comic books. Going all the way back. Yeah, to but they were very, as you, I'm sure you know, they were very different. The early team was very different and very much younger and very white and very American. And, and, and just, it had a kind of post-war pulp, you know, 50s. I mean, it was Stan writing it. So he was somebody that grew up in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And so it more, uh, you know, reflected his his outlook. But I think what, what, grab, what grabbed me were... Um, was this difficult situation, and that's why I loved focusing on Magneto eventually, and the the the, the bromance, the love between Magneto <laughs> and Xavier, yes. because yeah. they were they were such articulate uh, uh, idealists for their point of view, and each point we wanted to we didn't want to diss Magneto as a villain. We wanted to have just as much respect for him as we do for Xavier, so that they can look at each other and argue the future of mute kind and you don't necessarily pick one you know we've had a lot of fans say yeah i i bought what magneto's talking about go to asteroid m get away from these idiot people that don't want you around yep yeah Good Bad so having that dynamic was great um but as far as the other characters went we wanted to have it be this big uh uh dysfunctional family that everybody was as different from each other as possible. So that made for the more interesting stories. We, as writers, the hardest part is if you've got eight GI Joes and they have the same cadence to their voice and the same attitude and the same look and the same background, who do you give a line to? Who do you give an action to? If you've got the eight X-Men who are so different from each other, immediately when you're writing a scene, oh, Beast has to say this, or Storm has to stand in. This is only something that Rogue would do. This is only something that Gambit would do. Mm -hmm. And I think it made Gambit. this stronger. It sure made the writing more fun. It made the writing more satisfying to have all these incredibly distinct people thrown, stuffed in this house. And most of them were, this is a very Marvel thing, 
were loners, were orphans, were people that had been uh, kicked out of their families, mm -hmm. people that didn't have another place to go and found themselves taken in in this new family. And that was a that was kind of a cool thing because even when they drove each other crazy, they would die for each other, mm -hmm. and that's a nice kind of you know tension to have. People have asked, well, you have Wolverine, why why don't you why why didn't couldn't you have Colossus as part of the team? You know, uh, Cable as part of the team. All these big hulking characters, Thunderbird. You could have you could have six big rough guys. Yeah, you know, growling at each other, and you wouldn't have had a show. Right. But also want to point out, it, it turned out it was a happy accident. There was no necessarily um, sitting down and, and, and sort of penciling it out, but it just so happened that the strongest X-Men were, in my opinion, the, the female X-Men. Yep. Still and are. Were, and there was never, ever a question of um, uh, softening them or weakening them or doing anything to them other than just, you know, you know, uh, pedal to the metal and it did not in any way distract or take away from any of the guys and again guys, 30 years ago that that itself was radical yeah. having female figures in what is what was called a boys action adventure show and having them be as powerful as they were in the in this universe with no apology yeah yeah because we would we got uh criticism about that or pushback about that uh on other shows so oh you got you got too many women in the cast yeah. or you know their, their toys don't sell come on and make it six guys and a girl and that it just luckily x-men isn't like that you know so mm -hmm. dance credit and, and everybody all the other 40 or 50 writers before us credit uh they wrote the women as strong as they wrote the men certainly from the 70s on from chris claremont on you had this equally powerful team i think early on uh it might have been like six guys and a girl and gene mm -hmm. looking uh stylish yes. but certainly from the mid 70s on from the new new version of x-men on mm -hmm. it's that was absolutely um it was it was gender free i mean right. it was just yeah. like we didn't think of it as oh get more time women more screen time it just was is Storm better for the scene than Gambit? Well, hell, put Storm in. There was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, but Gambit needs to throw in his like little one-liners. I need them in my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm that's, glad to hear that. He was a writer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's like one thing when you were just talking about like the lines being very specific yeah. to the characters, like. They, it's so well written when you yeah. when you watch it and you hear them. They're like, "Yup." That's, voice. Yes, that's a Wolverine line. I don't remember what episode we were watching the other night. I think it was Wolverine said something like, "Oh, they're they're attacking a hospital for blind people. I'm gonna kill them all." And it's like he says something so kind and then so aggressive in the same sentence. It's like perfect for Wolverine. Yeah, yeah. No, they that was one of the remarkable things was the, the the range within that whole batch of characters that each one of them would have a very specific, distinct, but honest reaction to whatever was going on that was specific to that character. Like if you put a box in the middle of of the room with the sign on it, you know, uh, delivered to Charles Xavier, do not open. You know, each one of them would behave differently with that box, and it would. Mm. You know, so that makes it very easy to to write for those characters. 
and you know, they just asserted themselves in very different ways all throughout the entire series. It was real gratifying. And taking a moment here, because the show ran from 92 to, uh, 97. to 97, when the movie started coming out in 2000, and again, I want to say Margaret Lesh from the beginning had been going to the folks on the Fox feature side saying, this is an, people are enjoying this. You might want, anyway, when the show, when the movies came out, they had the same amount of co comic book history to, to draw from, but the team they chose was pretty much the team that you helped put together for X-Men, the animated series. And I take a certain amount of pleasure in that, that yeah. they, and they translate that. And I'd argue they downplayed some of the powers and the strength of the female characters that you all nailed perfectly, you know, Storm and, and Rogue specifically. Yeah, yes. I, I, I tried to, that was, she had this idea of those two characters in her mind before we started doing this, this podcast completely changed everything that she knew about. And I'm now livid. Like I am so <laughs> angry about the movies and what, happened to those people so They're great, but thank <laughs> you for continuing their strength in your show that was that was one of probably our biggest disappointment was what happened with the female characters because i just think they they didn't quite know how to deal with them or you know there's always a tr trouble when you got seven or eight powerful beings and how to cert get them all something to do within a scene and i think one of the first things in the back of their minds they said well we're gonna kind of combine Jubilee and Rogue, and we're gonna have Storm maybe do something spectacular for 15 seconds at some point, but they weren't really the, the focus of the show. And that, yeah, I found that disappointing because for animation, that was one of the first things that, that comes to mind for animation, have somebody flying than it is to have them walking. Yeah, so, much cheaper. <laughs> so having Rogue, uh, giving Rogue the power to fly is, is a great thing for animation. It actually saves you money, and it adds to the spectacle, and it allows you to have somebody with Storm up. I mean, let's, you have two characters to be up there having fights or having discussions, or so it's not just oh, this is the one you know Superman could fly around by himself. You you had two people that could do it. So in a practical standpoint, it was good for us. But yeah, I just uh, there were wonderful, there continue to be wonderful things in in the movies. I mean, some of the casting is just jaw-dropping, great. I mean, like yeah. Xavier, both young and old, and Wolverine, yeah. and, and Magneto. It's just Magneto, this long list. I mean, if we could have died and gone to heaven, we couldn't have thought of a better cast than they figured out for the movies, both older and younger. So that, I mean, that's just as a start. They, they put billions of dollars into those movies, and they made them look wonderful, and they cast them beautifully. So even if we have quibbles about some of the stories that we might have told differently, that's, you know, we had our shot. They have their shot. And you can't be, you know, you, you can't second guess, you know, whatever decisions they're making. And some of the, and some of those movies are just wonderful. But let me say, when I pick up a comic book or when I see an image, I still hear Cal Dodd of Wolverine in my head. I still hear George Booza. I'm not going to argue with um, Hugh Jackman ever, ever, ever. But the voice <laughs> that I hear in my head is, are the are the voices from the animated series. They're so good. Oh, Eric, here's a fun story about Bob Harris going to the recording. Because oh, yeah, that yeah. was a challenge, finding the voices. Yeah, in Canada. Because it was all at me in Canada because it was less expensive to right. record in Canada. We're down in Los Angeles. So I don't, if you, I think it was in this book. I know it was in the previous book. Well, we, we, we set, uh, sent a script up to Canada and some good people that worked with Fox many times before 
and they sent back an initial recording. They did a casting initial recording. And it was just awful. It was just way over the top, cartoony, Scooby-Doo, X-Men. Because that's what folks were used to yeah. recording. I mean, yeah. that was the previous 20 shows they've done had that level of tone. And we tried to communicate on the phone. Look, this is different. This is serious. This is adult. This is dramatic. Make your adjustments. Look at what's going on here. These are adult characters. Respect them. Didn't work. Didn't matter. So they missed with the first shot. We we sent a couple people up. Marvel sent a couple people up. Larry Houston, Sydney Iwaner went up there to help supervise and see what they could do. And two folks from Marvel, wonderful folks from Marvel, Joe Calamari and Bob Harris went up there, and they all spent you know ten days, two weeks recasting and then redoing the pilot to the point they did the pilot four or five times to the point where this is the this is the tone for the show. One thing Toronto where it was recorded, Toronto had a real deep live theater um, community there. And so rather than what you would say would be typical voiceover, it's like, well, reach deep, see who yeah, you can find. get somebody from your Shakespeare Festival. And there were a couple from that. But so what touched us most was Bob Harris, who at the time um, uh, was, he was the editor of all the X-Men uh, titles. They had three or four going at that time. They're the Marvel's biggest titles, their most successful uh, books on the planet at the time. And he was overall in charge of X-Men for Marvel. And he was our reference. Whenever I had a question about canon, I'd write him an email or a fax. God, it's that long ago, I'd fax Bob Harris and say, well, what about these nine things? Would Wolverine do this? Would Storm do this? And he always made time. You know, he's obviously incredibly busy getting up four titles. Uh, but so he's up there uh, at the recordings and he realizes he's been reading these books for almost 30 years. He probably knows them better than anyone on the planet, but he's only heard the voices inside his head. Mm. He's never heard Wolverine made manifest or Storm or Rogue. He's never, and he'd hear new voices coming from the recording booth. And he's, my God, it's just like, like the hair would stand up on the back of his neck and he'd get goosebumps. And they've come to life. I've, I've, I've heard that voice for 30 years. That's like a family member but it's the first time I've ever heard them. And that for him, obviously for us, we just we just come up with this. We just started writing stories. It was exciting, but for Bob, he said it was just, it was surreal. When when Cal Dodd went in, who voice of Wolverine and was given the prompt, and well, who, who is this little my Well, he, he's short and he's angry. <laughs> <laughs> and he just put out a sort of one of his kind he of- growled. He growled. He said he's feral, so he growled. And everyone's head just snapped around in the booth. I, I think in most, it. I think in half a dozen of the cases, there was, you know, 15, 20 people try out for it. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds good. And then, you know, the right rogue walks in the, the last day of, of, right. of casting. Lenore Zan. And everybody just, oh my God, that's the voice. Or George Booza is Beast. His, his prompt was, okay, he's, he, he's Beast. Don't sound blue. His beautiful voice, his beautiful modulated yeah. voice. Yeah, he start, evidently did one reading where he was trying to be a little cartoony, and the the voice director just stepped in, Dan stepped in, and said, um, yeah. "said Look, play it, play yourself, play it realistic. Mm -hmm. You're not blue." <laughs> okay. okay. Oh, and, also a shout out to the voice talent and uh, the, the late great John Colicos or Colicos. We're still working on the pronunciation, but he was, apocalypse. he was the voice of apocalypse. <laughs> and what we didn't find out 
until after he passed that because again we never crossed paths they're all up in canada we're all up in southern, down in southern california yeah. we never had a reason to cross paths he eric and i sort of bonded early uh, over star trek the original series that was like my thing and it was his thing and we turns out um Jankolikos was we found out the first Klingon. Klingon to appear uh, in the original Star Trek series. Um, it, oh, golly, the, in the, uh, the Dove, Day of the Dove, the Day of, well, okay, whatever the episode was, and I'm misremembering it, but he, yeah. he, that was, he was the first Klingon, which is like, oh my God, to have been like two degrees of separation from the guy yeah. who was at. And, and, then to, and, to, write, and to, to write the uh, dialogue for him and oh have that God. voice come up for, for oh. apocalypse just blew his way unbelievable epic um, so epic yeah yeah so i like that connection there for yeah. the show yeah i want to talk about the theme song okay. because i love the theme song and i want to know like i was you know there's you you guys talk in the book a little bit about like the process of finding it so like when you heard it was it like this is it this is it throw everything else out this is it like, Same with the voices. Tell me, you know, like, tell me your feelings about the theme song. Yeah. Well, I heard it late. The the two people, Sydney and I wanted who's the main Fox guy, and Will Will, Will Minio, Minio. who was the supervising producer that knew, had run a lot of shows. He uh he and Sydney would sit with the composer or or he they they'd hear the new batch, they'd hear the new batch. And there had been alternatives to this. This this one that was worked on and worked on and refined by Ron. Other people had pitched, you know, uh, singing, they are the X-Men, da 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 I mean, there were a, a dozen uh, options put out. And this one, okay, this they heard the first version that, that Ron did. And said, okay, it's not quite right yet, but this is the right track. Okay, Ron, intensify it. Put, uh, make it faster. Make it more <laughs> garage band. Make it more, you know, this and that. And he'd do it. And he'd redo it. And he'd add layers. He'd add layers. And it was all on you know, synthesizer. And finally, for Will and for Larry, uh, for Will and for uh, Sydney, he, he set one in and they said, aha, yeah, this is it. So that was really crafted. I mean, it was supervised beautifully. Mm -hmm. it, it was the, the, the core of it was chosen right. And then, and then the supervisors and the uh, composer built it and built it and built it until it was. So that one wasn't, it didn't just happen like <laughs> one evening. That was a couple of weeks of heavy sweating to get to that. And just uh, for the sake of uh, Ron Wasserman having made this thing that, it, that everyone's got burning their brain, he was on staff uh, for Saban Entertainment. So it wasn't like he was getting paid per attempt or paid per effort. He was a weekly writer. He was on staff like most of us were one of the other companies. He was he was getting a little frustrated. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was, I mean the 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 uh, situation at Saban back then was a little more kind of you know toss it out and get to the next project and, and yeah so so that this was this kind of redoing it until it was right was kind of new for him. But look what he did. Look yeah, what he did. Just solid gold. It's yeah. solid gold. And playing it over uh, the opening credits. Uh, the, uh, if looking at it cold, you don't need, you can you can appreciate suddenly that these are characters that most of the country weren't familiar with in October 1992. You might have heard about the X Men. Oh, that's a Marvel comic. Okay, but in that wordless intro, 
you're introduced to each of the characters. You get a taste of each one's uh, abilities and powers. You get a general sense of what they can do. There is a lot of information that's very neatly handled uh, yeah. in that opening. And that's credit to Larry Houston and Will, and Will Minio. And I think, didn't Larry take a pass over one weekend yeah. roughing storyboarding out that entire sequence? That was about, yeah, three days work on their part. They just, they were inspired. Yeah. You know, to, for, for as far as the visuals for the opening, because the, we look at the storyboards oh, and the effort, God. and really after the the second pass at the storyboard is 99% what you see on the screen right now. Wow. It, That's they, incredible. They, they just got it. They just got it right away. There's I never years. skip it. When we're no, watching we it on Disney Plus, I never <laughs> skip it. You give me that skip option. Why are you giving me that skip option? I'm watching this intro again. Yeah. Well, I have to sing my song. <laughs> there you go. Quick point, just because I find it so funny, because I find that I, when we were doing research on the show and all these things, if you look in the title sequence, there's a moment where Gambit's flaring his cards, yeah. and the pip for the club is upside down, and it goes by so it's fast. And, oh, let's find out. I think it's a spade. We're going to look it up right now. But it's I do Tell it's us off. what page to turn to. Open, I got it, open it up. The very first page. <laughs> The if you see that it's it's these, they took these off of the off of the screen. The and, very bottom image on the right on the on the page you're looking it's at. It's ace ace ace. <laughs> ace of oh snap! <laughs> someone doing research is like, oh Larry, did um did you ever catch that that they drew it wrong overseas? And he goes, oh no, I drew it that way. He went through his own records. He goes, I drew it wrong. <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't not, an Easter egg. It wasn't a part. It wasn't on purpose. He just nobody caught it. Three absolutely. Years later, it's like, Wait a second, that looks, wait a minute. And I realized my entire life I've been watching that, completely missed it every time. Yeah. I will so, now look for it every time. Like, there it is. There it is. There it is. There it there is. It is. <laughs> that would be Gambit style, though, right? To have a, a, a card like that in his pack. Yeah, just, just a little different. Right. Oh, yeah, that's, that's his style. Yeah. Gambit yeah, is his own man. Yeah. Um, I let's talk a little bit about the the fan community, the ex fan community, and what it's like for y'all to be part of such an amazing, growing fandom that spans over generations. Like this, this show, I'm sure, is getting new legs. New, yeah, it's it's got a whole new life now. Yeah, that's remarkable. Because let's be honest, over the last you know few years, you you haven't always been able to to find it on TV. Or find it online, you know, the original X-Men, the animated series. Occasionally it would play on, good Lord, was it uh, Disney, X, Disney XP? There were, there were different places where oh, we yeah, yeah. And and then it just kind of went away. There, we never had the luxury of a, of a set of DVDs, a whole series set. We, we The seasons were produced, but with, with zero um, bonus material. Uh, and you couldn't, you couldn't buy the set. You had to buy individual seasons. Then when we learned that Disney Plus was going to roll it out, it's like, oh my God! It, you're, what we, you just said, Alicia, there's there's a new generation that's going to be able to discover this now. But, but we we were we were aware of this before it got onto Disney, and we were we'd be, be at Comic Cons when when the first book came out in late 2017. Um, we started going to cons at least once a month. But and, we hadn't been before. Yet. And, Please understand, we didn't know. Yeah, we, did not know. we didn't realize how what a worldwide phenomenon this was. But and we we set up a website. We we got going, and we get notes from Portugal and New Zealand and and uh, Saudi Arabia. And so you don't understand. I grew, I grew up on your you know your show from every corner of the of the of the planet. And then we go to cons, and there'd be 
38-year-old men with their eight and 10-year-old children mm-hmm. saying, well, this is our, this is our family show. And that, you know, this, and from a creative person, that's just so humbling oh because every show you work on, you, you're trying to get it out to as many people as you can and hope that people get what you're trying to do. Yeah. And sometimes it works. Sometimes you, the most talented people you work with, it doesn't. Uh, you never know. There's some magic there. <laughs> that's, yeah. And you re- sometimes you really think you've done it right. And it's just, there's nothing there. And so, so finding out that all over the planet, this was people's favorite show which is we have you know we're fans we you know we have shows that just changed us or that star trek yeah <laughs> yeah or you know favorite songs or things that just stay with you the rest of your life and yeah. imprint on you and finding that out at the cons was really cool and the disney coming back was was great for us a because now we can let everybody know people would ask at the cons where's it going to show Do you know where i could buy some dvds i don't know they should be out of stock or now it's on Disney Plus. Everybody can see it, and it's just—it's amazing. So yeah, you're right. There's going to be a whole new generation that can get to it casually, which is wonderful. Yeah, our, my best friend's son watches it. He's four. He'll come over oh. and he'll be like, "Tell let's let's play with Wolverine." Yeah. He asks me all the questions about the characters, and we go through them all, and it's yeah. just great to be able to share it with that next generation of people that. I think it's because y'all captured it so well, Mm -hmm. the core idea, and it resonates so well to all the fans of the comics throughout the years. Yeah, every time we talk to, we've gotten the opportunity to actually have conversations with so many people in the X community through this podcast. And so often when we're having conversations with people and everyone kind of starts out like, what was your introduction to the X-Men or what really hooked you? It's always the show. It's just incredibly gratifying. It's something we couldn't have imagined when we, when each of us had a chance to, to do what it is that we do. Coming out here trying to make it in Hollywood, you know, <laughs> from being other parts of the country. Yeah, and and then having it now to be any part of that legacy is just remarkable. Yeah, and the different. I mean, we, we used to work in our home office, <laughs> and and occasionally go into the production office. But it's not like a, a performer that, say, performs a song and you've got all the people reacting to it. We don't know until people tell us, oh, the shot got through to you, you liked it. Uh, you know, we don't know. We don't, we don't get fan mail or, you know what. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's wonderful that we finally found it out. And we, we meet people at, at the cons and there always be. It can get very emotional for, for a lot of the, the, the folks that show meant a lot to. Watched with their parents, watched with their grandparents. Who it yeah. is just it's amazing yeah. the connection they, they made as a family for the show. So that's been made that's been made real to us. What was our kind of our day job, and we care a lot about it. But we while we're doing it, there's no there's no connection with the with the viewer with the fan while you're doing it. And in 1992, right. there was no. There was the internet, but it would take you half an hour to upload <laughs> a link to somebody else and have to download onto a boy. It was a different universe in terms of how things were communicated to people. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, it, it really wasn't until well, I'll poke him that um, the writing of the first book previously on X-Men. It's like, let, let's celebrate the show. There, there wasn't that much out there that was in celebration of the show versus say other productions with other companies that, had been supportive throughout their years. Um, so that's what kind of got us um, 
looking around and going, hey, there there are people out there for whom it mattered. And we didn't know. We didn't know like we know now. And, and every time, increasingly grateful for that. Yeah. Well, I think just the fact that you had such a fully formed idea and, and you, you know, you, we talked about it a little bit earlier where Jubilee is that point of view character mm -hmm. and just experiencing it at the, at, all at once and, and really peeling back the layers. Uh, where was the inspiration to kind of go this route of, of having this fully formed idea? And was Jubilee always your point of view character, always the, that first person narrative? Yeah, we, we had decided uh, uh, there are about five or six characters that, that all the main people decided need to be in the show. One was was uh, was well, obviously Wolverine and and uh, Scott, and they they liked and they liked Rogan Gambit and Storm. So there's that that's core five, and we said, well, Xavier really has to be focused on because you know it's it's his it's his group. And so in writing it, these other people started to rise up, like Xavier and Jean Grey and uh, Beast. Beast. Hmm. And they, they became more, uh, you know, they became more and more important. But it, it started out with, um, we when we discussed it with Marvel at the time, 1992, we said, okay, we we want these to be mainly adults with really adult problems and life and death and love and heartbreak and all these things that not, these aren't uh, X Men babies, they aren't 12 year olds. We need we need this to be adult show. That's where the books are. But we wanted. They said, yeah. But we all agreed we wanted one adolescent character to be the to be the the way in for uh, adolescents and also just the, the new the new person, the new mm -hmm. X Men. Right. And Kitty, they'd done that a failed pilot with Kitty Pride. They Margaret had tried. Some of the same artists had done a wonderful art job. It looks great. The yeah. story didn't really come together. It didn't sell. So that was kind of a a bad taste in their mouths as far as well we tried it once with her and it's called pride of the x-men and that failed we don't want this to look like just a rehash of that uh jubilee's popular now use her instead she was a newer mm -hmm. character in the same way gambit was a newer character and that was they're kind of on their radar for yeah they even they mentioned cable as well as someone who was kind of brand new and they wanted it to, to get in at some point mm -hmm. and we decided he was kind of too he didn't quite fit with the rest of the characters to, for the team but it's okay we'll we'll guest star him sometime in the first season but but yeah jubilee was a, a a a group choice to be the way in at first and then after that as as uh you know we wanted to try to once it was established once we're a couple shows in and everybody kind of knew this world we wanted different people to be the way into the stories mm -hmm. and sometimes it was her and wolverine sometimes it was uh you know some a guest character say Iceman coming back that some of them knew and some of them didn't mm -hmm. and just trying to keep variety going among 76 episodes and two or three episodes I'm least fond of looking back are ones where I felt like I was repeating my or we were repeating ourselves and not not coming up with something fresh or different or oh we're doing the human mutant clash again but I don't love these new characters and we haven't come up with a new spin so there's great pressure to come with with new ways to get into stories and that uh, I think that's part of any tv show that you have, I mean, I feel, just imagine The Simpsons are about 700 episodes in. <laughs> God bless them. And, uh, they have to work very, very hard not to repeat themselves, but yeah. that's, that was part of it. 
I just want to uh, interject here. Uh, credit to you um, with, with the company. Here's how it was seeding back and forth um, back in the day. We would come up with writers would come up with ideas and pitch them, and you were pitching ideas and everything. And anyway, you know, things were you know, funneling. You would run them by Marvel to get sort of general approval, and then. We, you know, but you're the you're the one who came up with what became the two-parter, one man's worth. That was an idea you had from the that oh you know hey, and that was a that was a clean, brilliant story. What would happen if if Xavier didn't exist to form the X Men? Mm. And in pitching that, uh, Bob Harris is well, that's interesting, and. I'll tell you now because I can be proudful about it. They then took it and turned it into the Age of Apocalypse stories for the whole book series, but did it. And and then when by the time One Man's Worth came out, it's like, oh, you guys are adapting Age of Apocalypse. It's like, <laughs> tell no. you what, honestly, you came up yeah. with One Man's Worth, and that that blossomed over here and became Age of Apocalypse. So, you know, that was kind of the sort of happy accidents that happened along the way there. Yeah, I mean, it's it was nice after taking you know after taking so much from Please, that they yeah. had created yes. and using it for ourselves the fact that they were able, able to take some things back you know that or things we other things we did with the, with the with the characters like we had tried to have uh uh scott and gene get married and have a baby <laughs> yeah, uh, right. we got some resistance on that but then later marvel said hey that's not a bad idea yeah. so there were there were seeds that we sowed that we felt proud of they ended up using the books that to help balance a little bit all the stuff all the stuff that took yeah. the books that was our our marching orders were come up with original stories but every single time you can use a character or an incident from mm -hmm. the books use that and that way it makes the fans happy it, it cements the connection to the books and it can be just as easy to use uh say a villain from the books as it is to make one up Mm -hmm. uh, so that in that way, uh, people say, "Oh, you know, you, you adapted an awful lot of stories. We only adapted five or six stories that were from, you know, directly from books." Days of Future Past. But when we'd write a story, I sometimes I call Larry and say, "Well, I need someone to really piss off Wolverine here. <laughs> Who do you suggest yeah. from the long list of Marvel?" Oh, okay. Well, let's use that guy. And so we would fit in. Um, bits and pieces from the old Marvel universe to flesh out our stories, but we wouldn't start with them. We'd start with yeah. the stories and populate them with uh, uh, people from the Marvel universe. Yeah, and, and to have that impact on that world. I mean, Age of Apocalypse is a huge story. People love it, and and even the wedding of of Scott and Jean that that full they had like a full wedding album. Uh, I remember that issue perfectly. That's that's amazing to to know that that was kind of a a fluid process of inspiration going back and forth. Was there anything about a, a character's backstory or, or something that you had seen that you wanted to play with with a character that you didn't get a chance to or or an aspect of a character that stuck out that you really enjoyed seeing brought to life on the show? I'm going to say looking back on it, the idea that Jubilee was in in the foster care system we, we didn't really get to address what that meant or or could have meant and her asian americanness right yeah. we didn't really touch on we didn't really touch on that she went to japan to help wolverine once but but, but she herself is chinese american yeah. I mean, in other words we didn't that's something that looking back that might have been i would have enjoyed having a chance to explore what that meant for her yeah what 
how did that work for her to live in this world, to be a mutant, to you know also find herself in a you know without her parent, without her birth parents, but somehow in the foster system. Looking back, that's something I wish we could have taken the time yeah, to do. Yeah, there's there's more certainly a lot of more space in the background of these characters. I think mm-hmm. Wolverine was a real temptation because he's <laughs> he's such a compelling character. Everybody just is drawn to him. We had to actually consciously pull back. Right. And he still ended up being the one we wrote most about, but um, he's just such an easy character to write for. He's, everybody loves him. Everybody, everybody loves, loves him. So we consciously do that. I think looking back, we short changed a few people. If we had another 20 some episodes, we would have maybe done a couple more storm stories and a couple more Jubilee stories. Um, and and Gambit's background, I mean, he, he's so he's so great at being mysterious. mysterious. mysterious you know, right. I don't want to do too much to like, is he really being a good guy today or is he just playing me? You know, you don't, you don't yeah. want to yeah. answer that question, but it'd be fun. He was always, yeah. he was, he was important in yeah. the mix for that reason. Yeah, I think we uh, thoroughly fleshed out Xavier's background. Uh, we could do a little more with Beast. Um, oh, and Beast. and Jean, I mean, Jean is like, she, she was, she was important in almost every episode and mm-hmm. she functioned with everybody so beautifully, but I, you know, I think in the movies we got to know her family a little bit. We never really saw her family or no. saw other people that meant something to Jean's life. She always always seemed to be, you know, a facet of somebody else in the X Men group and or in between them. Or and so she got a lot. She got a lot of screen time, and we really cared about her. But we didn't find out that much about. We didn't give her that many stories herself. I mean, obviously. Phoenix kind of blows that up all in the water. But I think of that more as Phoenix than I think of it as being Gene. Right. Mm, yeah. yeah. Although I think people need to lay off the memes <laughs> that all Gene does is think and faint. I'm a little tired of that. She deserves a little more respect than this. Respect Gene, please. She's an omega level mutant. All right. So while we're talking about the characters, Who's your favorite character from the show and why? Uh, hey, as, as I'll speak for a lot of the writers on the show, Beast was just, oh, he's a damaged poet who is the smartest guy in the room. And he can, oh, and so the, one of the things you came up with in the pilot episode is the idea of Beast having a call to action, but as a quote, he would have the correct, the perfect quote for whatever the situation was. 1992, Internet not being what it was, you had Bartlett's book of uh, quotations. A couple dusty old (laughs) quote books. Pull that out and go, um, someone trying to do a foot race, or, you know, and you come up with a quote. So, Beast was fun. Among the writers, it was fun to try and out quote each other, you know, in terms of, because we all thought we're the smartest people in the room being the writers. And and it was Beast. And for me, I mean, we had to love them all because we had to write them all. But um, I really, I empathized with Xavier because <laughs> he is like me having 20 writers to try to, you know, <laughs> do he had eight X-Men to try to deal with and try to, even if they did, they were at odds with each other, keep, herd the cats. So I, <laughs> I empathized with the, that guy myself. Awesome. Oh, goodness. Okay. It's my turn to ask a question. Look at the list, Alicia. Um, <laughs> okay, so the X-Men in the show, they have so many threats, right? They have evil mutants, humans trying to take them down. How did you balance all of these threats and still give them hope to fight for? That's Whoa. That's hard because wow. if, 
you're right. If, if you step back from it, it's pretty overwhelming. It only feels yeah. like there may be a few hundred or a couple thousand mutants in the world uh, in, in this X-Men universe because, I mean, Xavier is pretty good at what he's doing. He's trying to find them, and there aren't that many on screen. So you'd think that would be kind of a pretty hopeless situation if eight billion people end up not wanting you around. You're not, you got, but I don't know. I just, he seemed like such a, such a committed idealist that mm -hmm. from, I could see any of the other X-Men leaving and some of them, you know, that three or four of them, Wolverine left every 15 episodes. <laughs> Storm left. Uh, Scott left for an episode when he thought Gene was dead. Like, but I can't see Xavier ever giving up. You know, if there are no matter how few are left, he just—I think it's the core, the core of his being—is that he's yeah. committed his life to this. Mm -hmm. So he's what keeps them all together. I think they—they would come up. They would come apart. In fact, that was one of the fun things we had when he was stuck with Magneto for the second season. In the Savage Land. In the Savage Land. land. So, okay, what kind of tensions and struggles are going to happen with this? leader gone and then the family left without the father and they saw and and you could so it's uh yeah i, th I think you're, you're right it's realistically they don't have a whole lot of chance but uh i think it's like we're focusing the stories narrowly enough that that question doesn't that that question doesn't come up that you know how small their group is it's just we make it seem like they're solving small problems one at a time mm -hmm. and survive till the next day. Well, that's good. But the, yeah, that's, that's, I hadn't thought about that so much, but it's, yeah. it's true. I mean, yeah. it, for it, real, the question. Yeah. What keeps and it's, so, it's so important because it's, it's another thing that's like a teachable moment, I'll say, yeah. you know, this idea of overcoming, adversity. overcoming. And then there is always like that one person in like a friend group or a family who will be there to kind of push everybody into the direction of like, it's okay, we can get through this, you know? And so that's another really relatable moment because sometimes you're just like, I just can't anymore. But then you have that support system. And I think that's also such a great, you know, family aspect because what you're talking about in that season when Xavier is not there, like Jean is kind of filling in those holes. Like she's, kind of mentoring people caring and, for the people yeah on the taking team care and... of people wondering like how are you doing how can i help you you know so even if xavier is not that person the team still has that person to help them exactly critical critical to it yeah exactly exactly you know, we're talking about about hope and about the odds <laughs> how did the stakes of a potential death impact the overall tone and direction i i don't want to shout for morph but you know that's it was so important i mean yeah. uh, we we wrote in both books how when we, we we got this mark and i got this assignment and we just looked at each other and i think he was the first one to say is that we have to kill somebody to show how that the, the, the next man has consequences that the stakes yeah. are real and so he was literally picked to kill from the beginning he was supposed to stay dead was, this was not a soap opera death trust me and i'm a soap opera fan and, he was supposed to stay dead and that was the biggest <laughs> that was the biggest moment worldwide we bump into people and so he said the moment in early in episode two when morph dies i knew the show was different and so they that and so and you got and we, we it was important we 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 got pressure we got direction from uh the people 
uh, from Avery. From, oh, from Avery Kilburn, if she yeah. hadn't agreed you to know, this? She easily, it took a couple of weeks of going back and forth with her. I said, can we do this? Because I know you, I know this is absolutely against the rules of children's programming. And I and thought it, you didn't have a chance. Yeah, right. I thought you're kidding so, me. So it's not gonna never going to happen. Persuaded, persuaded. And finally, she laid down a bunch of laws. You know, it needs to be off screen. It can't be gratuitous. It can't be. You know. And so basically what it came ended up being was more powerful that way. Yeah. Is that you knew he was gone. And then you saw it on the faces of everybody else, like mm -hmm. a sudden loss yeah. of him. Oh and so by forcing us not to just show, I'm a sentinel, I'm blowing up this character, and look, I think he's dead, it became much more personal. And I think it probably blew away because is Morph really dead? So now here's the problem. Yeah. That was for 13 episodes, and that was, you know, that was all we thought we'd have was those and 13 we episodes, and Morph, is, and Morph is dead. Boom. Mm -hmm. Done. And then when you get tapped to do seasons so, two, three, and four, yeah. you get a phone so, call. <laughs> so, yeah, season two, they had, they showed six or seven episodes on television, and uh, we were starting up, so it would be January, February. Mm -hmm. And so February, they commit to a, a new episodes for the fall for September. So there's enough time to do 13 more. So they say, okay, we're doing another season and the network gets a bunch of kids together. Well, kids together, well, probably nine year olds and say, um, uh, and has a focus group. Has a focus group. You don't like those words. You don't like focus group. Not and good. It, not good. Not and good. one of the obvious questions that they ask every one of these focus groups about kids television, who's your favorite character? And Morph killed everybody. Morph was by far the favorite character. Um, that you know, they may be seen six episodes, but so so we got the phone call saying, <laughs> Please look, I know it was important to kill him, I know this was crucial, it was central to your whole vision for the show, but please, he's <laughs> can we have him back? And can that you please was, just rework your entire vision, yeah. just yeah. please. And we sucked it up and got professional and didn't like it, but then we thought, Okay, now that we've been asked to do this. Can we do cool stuff with it, like even PTSD, and it turned him into a friend of the villains for Steel a while. Mr. Sinister. I mean, it opened up a real rich vein of yeah, storytelling. Yeah, so there's some cool stuff to do. As in terms of people that love Morph as a as an equal level character, to be honest, after that second season, after you know one through twenty six, and we'd seen him in three or four episodes in that second season, um, I had kind of put him out of my head for future episodes and we it was we must have been in episode 45 or 50 before i realized oh my god we've, we haven't done more for 20 episodes because kind of i guess we thought of him as being killed off and so we hadn't been thinking of him for other stories and then we made a conscious decision to bring him back for two or three other uh episodes in the, like in the middle you know ep forget which ones they were one called courage where he's still a little bit shaky and yeah. not sure if the trauma's gotten over and I think the thing, too, we can take away from having asked the kids innocently, so who's your favorite X-Men? And everyone going, Mark! The way you guys set it up in the, in the pilot is he, everybody likes him. Everybody He's can He makes everybody laugh, you know. It, and it worked. You know, his, yeah. his, his, we made him too lovable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, yeah, because that's what I was wondering. Like, what is it about more? Yeah. He's only in one episode. How do you love him so much? God. <laughs> Because he was Wolverine ends the second episode oh, saying he's going to yeah. yeah. And then, and you also see Gambit you know, enjoying his shtick. You know, you see every character in you know reacts to more with, with affection, and that's I think also what made it the, his 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 death so so impactful as it needed to be. The whole point was 
this is not a show that resets each week and and nothing changes and no one can be harmed. It, this you know, this in their world, these bad things can happen. And look, it's mm-hmm. just to an X Men. Uh, ironic, not ironically, but we, we have we had the chance uh, two years ago to meet Ron Rubin, who's the voice of Morph, <laughs> and shared that during the. Um, the the, uh, the audio taping of the pilot. He, oh God, this is great! This is great. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, I'm dead. Yeah, yeah. that doesn't happen. What the yeah. heck? Yeah, All my friends got thirteen checks, and I get two. Yeah. Yeah. We had that conversation with him two years ago. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, but uh, and uh, side note, the character had been uh, a character named Thunderbird had been. Craft that drafted to be Morph because in the books he himself had been he had sacrificed himself for uh, for uh, Professor X, and that was important to try and be as consistent within the books as we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the realization he was at that point the only uh, Native American character in, indigenous that was part of the team, and then he's killed. That that didn't sit right. Was yeah. Hard yeah. Yeah, so so we so we came up with a we dug through the history of the books and found another character that had died to help the X Men. But then in the opening sequence, along with looking for the the pip that's upside down, in the final bunch when they're charging each other, um, there is the character of Warpath on the bad yeah. guy side, and that's because they'd already designed Thunderbird uh, and had some art on him already. So that so that was an, easy, go, an easier villain to put in there dark, with with yeah. no time. Quick, 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 quick. Design the design. Mm-hmm. We've got a guy. Yeah, we've got a guy. Well, there you go. Some inside dirt there. <laughs> I love it. Love it. So, I mean, you're talking about not knowing the fan reaction until much later. At what point did you know that you had something that was working and that, you know, hey, there's going to be a season two? How do we top season one with season two? You're saying didn't get reaction till nine or so months after the fact. Yeah, we had a couple preview screenings uh, on Halloween and Thanksgiving. So there are two preview screenings because it's going to – it's it's hard thinking back, but back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all the TV shows would premiere in the first, in early September. That was – you'd get a, a new TV guide and you'd have you know, mm-hmm. new shows. And so X-Men was supposed to premiere in September along with Batman. Uh, in 91 and we had a lot of production problems and other things that held us up. So we changed, okay, now we're going to do it in January, but there were a couple episodes that were ready October, November to show. So clever Margaret Lesh got Fox to have a sneak preview and uh, uh, twice. <laughs> and both of those went over well, but we thought, well, and, and we're seeing him now. We said, well, we like it. Well, this is kind of, this is really what we had in mind. This looks good to us. And they got good rate, but they were they were at 7 p.m. They were a special showing. We didn't know if that would translate over to Saturday morning and if the kids would love it, all ages. So then it premieres in January and with huge numbers and they just go higher. So within, say, the third week and the third Saturday in January, we knew we had this huge hit. And that's probably about when they said, okay, we're going to commit to a second season. And at that point, um, it was, you know, we got it. We got that uh, it's all worked. And there had been a lot of creative discussions during the year before, wondering if people would like this, but little, like you say, your four-year-old, 
Little kids really liked it. Medium kids liked it. In Hollywood, it's, especially for children, they're very pigeonholy. They'll say, okay, is that a, is that a preschool show? Is mm-hmm. it, is it uh, two to five? Is it six to nine? Is it nine to 12? Uh, is it teen? Is it young adult? So you have like six categories and you're supposed to decide one of those before you write a show because everybody seems to think, oh, you got a narrow cast. So you got all sorts, all these competitors out there. They're just focusing on what it means to be a 10 year old. Well, we just said, no, no, this is appealed to everybody. Believe us. No. And that's when we were writing it, they said, this sounds so adult. You know, this four year old's not going to get any of this. A seven year old's going to get half of it. A 10 year old's going to get two thirds of it. Why are you doing this? And we just kept telling them little kids look up to their older siblings. They mm-hmm. like being challenged by stories. So if you write the oldest show that you can possibly write, you'll have the biggest. You know, you're not going to lose the two to five year olds. You're not going to lose the six to nine year olds if you make it fun and spectacular enough. I bet for a lot of three and four year olds, it's the, the pretty colors are as important. You know, the, the the outfits are as important as anything that they might glean from the stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so we, we made sure to have it really as fast paced as we could and as much spectacle as we could while we're telling very, very adult stories. And uh, that seemed to work, but it does, you know, it's funny Two, you know, two projects later, you know, we'd be talking to executives and we get the same thing. No, no. Our child psychologist says that, uh, you know, you have to focus it for four to six or whatever. And, and this is, these words are too big, so, you know, dumb it down. And we've had to do that on shows. We've been specifically told, take the big words out, <laughs> you know, and, you just want to roll your eyes because you remember when you're a kid, how cool it was to think that you were watching something more grown up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You didn't quite get, and, it was, and there was a mystery and excitement to that. So in the case, that's, like, yeah. that sparks the curiosity and wanting to learn more, right? If it's not something that you're originally getting, oh, let me watch it two or three times more and I'll understand it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's big beast says things sometimes and I'm like, what did he just say? And I'm an adult, but I'm pretty sure like Beast is one of Nolan's favorite characters. He like has his action figure, Beast and Wolverine. Those are his guys, you know? So it doesn't matter that he can't understand what he's saying. Yeah. He just gets his tone, you know? Yeah, yeah. So now that was, that was, and it was so, it was so gratifying to be able to write the characters that way. In effect, write for ourselves. I grew up, you know, on you know, the best Warner Brothers cartoons, the best, and, and Bullwinkle. And we know, we know some, met some of those people in their old age out here in Hollywood. They wrote for themselves. They wrote for other adults and have just having fun and making each other laugh or making, uh, impressing each other. Mm-hmm. And the kids followed. They, they followed mm-hmm. the that you know, because they were given this creative freedom, and they ran with it, and that's been our experience. The more, you know, the more creative freedom we have on a show, it you know it makes our writing better. It really does. So in season two, things changed a little bit, though, right? Like the structure of the show changed, and you had this Savage Land storyline. Which let me just tell you, I'm a huge dinosaur person, so. I didn't know the Savage Land was a thing. And then I saw it and I was like, this is my favorite. Please, can we stay here forever? Um, <laughs> but what was that like 
in the influence of the structural change. Yeah. Quick dinosaur story, just so you okay, know. Okay, yes. <laughs> Avery Coburn and Sydney Iwater uh, were the ones who did most of the day-to-day headbutting on things. Yeah, and she'd, she'd tell Sydney, okay, we have to take these seven things out of this, this script. We oh, can't, yeah. we can't yeah. show this plane exploding. We need to have see the guy getting to safety, whatever. So and so she said a dinosaur. There's a bit in, at some point in the Savage Land, because things are blowing up and volcanoes are erupting and dinosaurs are everywhere. And and the X-Men are getting trampled on and things are happening. There, at one point, a dinosaur makes its way up and falls into a volcano. That, that's just happening as part of the things are going on. <laughs> All this horror is occurring. And Avery comes back and goes, okay, you can do this, you can do that. You can do but I need to see that dinosaur climb back out of the volcano. We can't, we can't, can't kill, kill, the can't kill the dinosaur. And Cindy goes, you realize they're already extinct anyway. And, right. you know, this is, no. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere but, there's a dinosaur falling into a volcano and climbing back out. Amazing. There you go. But yeah, to, to, to answer your question about the structure, that first season was really, we wanted it uh, a 13-episode arc like, like current, like the best of current TV, the best of... Mm-hmm. Uh, primetime TV, we, I find, you know, uh, uh, serialized shows as opposed yeah. to one-offs. And it just wasn't allowed. And one of the reasons it wasn't allowed huh. in, in animation was looked like the problem we had. We had production problems. Mm-hmm. So if you've got episodes one and two and episode three is, oh, my God, we have to send it back to Korea and spend a month redoing it, then four, five, and six, even if they're ready, you can't show them. You have, if, if you have, it, 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 until you have all the episodes done you can't feel good about being able to show them in order well that first season we had some of those production problems and it spooked the people at fox and so they said reasonably she said we can't let you just do 13 connected stories again so we said okay how about if we'd have like an opening two-parter and a closing two-parter and then in the nine in between we have like 60 seconds of connected tissue in the savage land in all nine of them. We can shoot that first. It'll be ready. And so as we're shooting the other episodes, if if one of the episodes kind of doesn't work, we can put another, because the ones in between, it's hard to think about it, but they all stand alone. They all the nine in between kind of stand alone. And we said, as long as we have the little 60 second thing done, we can move those other ones in the middle around and you won't have the scheduling problems. I said, okay. And so that was a way to kind of keep connectivity but not worry the network that they're going to have to, you know, show reruns for six episodes because a couple of the episodes weren't produced right. So that was a way to kind of hold on to that. So we said, okay, we can do two-parter at the beginning. So we kind of had a four-parter with two at the beginning and two at the end that were these nine little other ones in between. And then after that, we thought, okay, third season, what do we do? Oh, Four and five parters. It's the uh, Phoenix Saga, and they thought of that as individual things, so they were comfortable with that. They, okay, you can do a four parter, you can do a five parter, but you have to do all these other single ones that aren't connected, so we don't have this production question. But Marvel also wanted you to do yeah, Phoenix yeah. and Dark. You'd earn their trust by we, then. Yeah, in we, terms of we, those we had that stories. after the first two seasons when everybody was thrilled and knew it was going. They committed to thirty nine to three more. To season three through five, um, committed the money for it. Uh, so now Marvel's okay. Yeah, what what haven't we done? And so we went and had Too a meeting stuff. in New York with them, and asked, you know, what from thirty years of X Men and Phoenix Saga and Dark Phoenix were the top top of the list. 
So that to me, that was a great thing because I had 39 episodes just assigned to me. And of course, the hardest part is coming up with what each story is. Yeah, that's 39 times you have to kill yourself to try <laughs> to come up with that one thing that will make a good story. And I've just been handed nine. So that means my job was just made like two months easier. I mean, it took some time yeah. to, to, to adapt them and make them work for television. But I didn't have to choose. I didn't have to. Yeah, it's a different part of your brain. Yeah, I didn't have to. What's a good new Gambit story? God, I can't think of one this today. But we need one. This was, okay, Marvel and Fox want to see these these two big arcs. So cool. I'll just get my best writers on making them work. So that's a decision I don't have to make. That was that was my I felt relief when I was signed those is, is what it was because people ask oh you know were you freaked out by being handed the crown jewels I said absolutely not I mean, <laughs> we were we were doing fine by then and felt confident by then and this was just a gift to us and I've I've said to a handful of people the best adaptation of the Phoenix and the Dark Phoenix sagas because it really treats them as individual stories and builds that connection and that appreciation for this character and her transformation. I didn't know that Phoenix and Dark Phoenix were two separate things. Because they're never really treated as such in, in the movies or in other adaptations, uh, that the fact that they are two separate arcs with a decent amount of story in between is... Yeah. Well yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Much, much appreciated for, for all of that. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now we were talking a little bit about Morph previously, and if he, he's a decent-sized part of season two, right? And if he wasn't initially intended to come back, what was uh, was there anything else that was kind of pushed out because Morph was now taking a center stage? Or yeah, I didn't know if you got the book, but uh, the, if it's in the second book, I know it's in the first book. That was the one thing that we told to pull back from. Mark and I had started setting up the second season, and we uh, ended the first season with Scott proposing to Jean, and mm -hmm. she said yes. And so the the first episode of the second season was going to be their wedding, as it was, but it was going to be a real wedding. And then they were going to be married, and she was going to end up seven months pregnant with a double mutant baby and run around kicking ass for three or four episodes with sure. a huge baby bump. Hey, it can be and amazing. Then, and then have the double mutant baby, and we take it from there. And we got kind of universal pushback from that, from all of our colleagues saying, guys, I know you're trying to be forward thinking here, but you know, 13-year-old boys are the kind of core of uh, uh, our X-Men audience. And having Dean and Spandex seven months pregnant uh, for three or four episodes, I just, there's kind of grimacing and humming and hawing. And they finally came back to Marvel and they said, you know, we're just not really ready for them to be married yet. So, okay, fine. So that was, that was, that's what was taken out and Morph was put in uh, to kind of took the place of it. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Um, when you were doing Phoenix and Dark Phoenix, did you get to work with Chris Claremont at all or talk to him? Ever. I, and I got to work uh, on uh, the Days of Future Past two-parter in, yeah. in season one. We, there, we didn't, there was no communication among the different 
levels of players. You know, all the all the comic book stuff was happening in New York, wherever the writers were for that. Yeah. And we were all in Los Angeles. It was was it 2018? We finally met Chris Kramer. Yeah. We got to meet him at a con. Is that the first year we met him? Yeah, New York Comic Con. That's crazy. Yeah. New York Comic Con? Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, we, yeah. we were in New Mexico. We haven't been oh, to New right. York yet. But yeah. he, and, and I didn't know if he was going to you know, punch us or shake our hands or, you know, because we had no seemed, interaction. He seemed very happy. Uh, he it's, was very gracious with us. It's, uh, it's weird. A few of the comic book people have from the East Coast have come out here the West Coast and and got into the animation business. Len Wein is the perfect example, oh, the guy that revolutionized the X-Men in 75 mm -hmm. and that Chris wor worked for and, you know, followed there. Um, and Marv Wolfman's another, you know, major uh, yeah. uh, comic book guy that's worked out here that we've become friends with. But most of them, most of the comic book writers in the East Coast. So when we got assigned this the first season, had kind of thrown in the deep end and said, okay, you're already two months behind, quick, come up with a cast of writers. I didn't even know that Len was in town. So I yeah. didn't ask, I asked after we were done with the first season, someone pointed out, well, Len means in town, he's written it. And I had to kind of humbly call Len up and say, Len, you don't know who I am, but uh, <laughs> uh, I do the X-Men show for TV. Would you be curious? I'm sorry I didn't call you the first season. How about season two? And he said, great. And he's the nicest man you ever want to meet. Oh, just great. Uh, but so Chris wasn't out here, and it kind of never came up that we should, uh, you know, try to bring him into the uh, into the TV writing. It's just it can be a different it can be a different muscle. Mm -hmm. I have no confidence that I mean I know I could write a comic book. I don't know that I could write a decent one. I don't know if I could write a competent one because there's just there's just a there's just a craft to it that mm -hmm. somebody doing it 10, 15 years, like a lot of our writers, uh, you know, have even run their own shows that they instinctively know how to, to mold a story to fit a 22 minute, uh, three, you know, three act uh, TV show. Whereas and the same thing with comics is that they it has its own structure to it. So it didn't occur to us unless somebody already was a TV writer to ask him to write for the show. That's the long, this, the long way of saying a short answer. We didn't get to work with Chris, but we got to meet him. And oh it was God. a wonderful couple hours we got to spend yeah. with him. And he wears his X-Men hat everywhere. We gave him a good yeah. I'm that. jealous that you got to spend a couple hours with him. Yeah. Although we do tend to monopolize the table. He's a talker. He's a great, <laughs> when we're there. <laughs> we'll just sit there and talk until someone says like, okay, move along, please. <laughs> Chris, you must stop. We're like, never. Yeah. <laughs> I miss those days. You know, we've yeah. only been doing the con circuit for like three or four years now, and and I miss I miss talking yeah. to people. Yeah, we, we we had when the book was coming out in, in October. We were planning to do oh. to have it come out at, at, at New York, York Comic Con. Oh. Right. Oh. That would have been awesome. Uh, yeah, but uh, no. next <laughs> year, do it yeah. again. Yeah, yeah you yeah. just have to do a big, a big reveal. Like now we're in person. Yeah. Get the book. There you go. I like that. That's good. That's good. The show is out now. Don't you want to know all this behind-the-scenes information? So does, does Providence have a big con or not? Rhode Island has a, a pretty decent-sized Comic-Con. Uh, I actually worked it last a couple of years ago with the last one that was in town. Yeah. Uh, and decent-sized – I mean, it's bigger than – I think it's bigger than Boston's, too. Yeah. 
Uh, it's who, always like sardines. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest show in the smallest state is what they say. Oh, that's, that, that's funny. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, so we we go to the local one, and then we went. We went actually for our honeymoon. Yeah, that New York Comic Con was our 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 mini our mini mini, moon. A mini moon. Wow. I was like, you 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 give me New York Comic Con, I will give you Jamaica. Yeah, that's fine. I was like, down, I'm down, but I will never ever again cosplay at New York Comic Con in a costume with heels. (laughs) Way too much walking, like just there and back, and then. I must be more careful about my armor because I was doing the like, oh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Okay, excuse me. okay, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, it's no, it's a big one. It's a big one. It's chaos. Yeah. It, you yeah. know, we, we've done San Diego half a dozen times and it's just, it, you're, you're, yeah. Yeah. You just, That's <laughs> like San Diego, we say is like maybe for our like 10 year anniversary, <laughs> you know, we'll go to San Diego Comic Con. But it's, it's, uh, it's, no, it's, it's a wonder. It's a wonderful thing. And let's just hope things can get back on their feet and get going again. Yeah. We all kind of lurch forward into 2021. Yeah. 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 Everybody's so, excited for it. Well, I hope everyone takes care and continues to take care and continues yeah. to be careful. Well, yeah. 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 Things will definitely evolve in yeah. procedure, but I hope we can get back to it because it's such a wonderful experience. Yeah. And in talking about the future, mm-hmm. we'll wrap up our questioning. Um, what do y'all hope for for the future of X stories? Well, um, I we would wow. love. I I think X Men does really well in animation, and I and I something that I think we're missing. Um, in fact, we've one of the people we interviewed for the first book was a, a television critic, and he just believes that that superheroes in general work better in animation than they do in, in real life in, in, uh, so, uh, well, and, and the way Warner brothers, uh, and, yeah. and DC have made these phenomenal, uh, direct video, uh, feature length animated yeah. movies. They're just spectacular. And Marvel's done very little of that. And that's certainly done, not for not, not done for the X-Men. And so I right. think that would, that would be a nice, I mean, for the Disney channel or whatever, for DVD sales, I think that'd be a nice sweet spot. Have a have ninety minute animated stories with the characters in it that we tend to know and love. And and it's like the last, just as an example, the last Spider Man movie oh that was God. animated. I thought it was the best Spider Man movie of all. Just yeah. Into the Spider Verse is amazing. I will watch it, that any it, day. Yeah, yeah, it's just astounding. I think if somebody took the same, I mean, that would be at the top end. At the bottom end, just somebody maybe spent five, ten million dollars on a, ni- a beautiful looking 90 minute, you know, show uh, f- that they could turn those out and that it would be a place where those characters would have n- enough space to breathe. We have trouble. One reason that we like multi-parters, it's tough putting a really good character story into 22 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Getting the spectacle and getting all the other stuff that you want. And so 90 minutes is a great length, I think, for uh, for this. and animation works great if that, somebody would put those two together i think that would be a, a place x-men could blossom uh that was a point i forgot to bring up during phoenix and dark phoenix is um the telling of that those those stories at that point the audience had had two years two and a half years to to meet jean gray to live with right. her mm-hmm. every week you know to talk about it you know listen we binge watch tv all the time i love binge watching but I will say at that time, uh, if you wanted to watch the X-Men, you had to watch it 
when it was on. You know, right. maybe your parents let you program the VCR, and it wasn't constantly available on a different form. You didn't have a cell phone you could watch it on. You know, you, you couldn't watch it. Laptops were not the thing they were now. There was something about for folks who gave five years of their time to watching X-Men, to building on that, to developing relationships with these people. So when when the stuff happened, when Dark, when Phoenix and Dark Phoenix happened, I, I truly believe it's because the audience had had time to meet and get to know Jean Grey and the rest of the X-Men to build on that mm -hmm. uh, is what those episodes did in a way that it, you, it's really hard to do that. In a one-off movie. Yeah. Yeah, in a movie, yeah. I, I think, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of, does that in the sense that they're building this large story over time but mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't necessarily have that luxury going in you know that was that was a gamble from the start that they kind of pulled it all together but I, I would totally agree especially with such a character driven franchise where it's really about their inner character relationships and and how they're affected by each other that's the stuff that i mean to... disney plus you've got series happening that yeah, are like yeah. hour-long oh, shows yeah. God, Let's make it happen. All God. those fancy Disney execs that listen to our podcast, come on. <laughs> call, call us. Thank yeah, yeah. We have ideas. I'm just putting that out. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would There's be it would be it would be great. And yeah. they and Lockwood for, for everybody, for all of us X-Men fans mm -hmm. and you know, the artists and the writers, you know, it'd be great if they got if they got back on that. Oh man, yeah. Absolutely. Boy, no kidding. This has been a really great conversation. We love yeah. talking to you guys. Love you guys talking are about awesome. This. Uh, oh, thank you. Give another shout out to the book. Everybody can go and find this online at retailers and comic shops. Uh, the Art and Making of the Animated Series by Eric and Julia Lewald. This, I've I've just been diving into it. Oh, yeah. They, check them out on Facebook, Instagram, we are, Twitter. At, oh, Twitter um, at X-Men T-A-S. For yeah. the animated series, that's that's the acronym I use for that. I'm on Twitter way too much. We are working on our website this week. We just took some glam poses yesterday that yeah. we'll hopefully Ooh. have. <laughs> oh, yeah. fancy! Now so, it'll be there soon. But so uh, please, you know, the social media engagement has been huge for. for and she's for, kept it up. She's kept it up for five years. For us to sort of meet folks and 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 have these things happen and. Previously on X Men, that, that this book yeah, if you want, yeah, led, yeah, 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 yeah. led to the joy of discovery when when Disney Marvel approached us then to do the art book. It's like it, it's been a very very um, fruitful time in that yeah. way, and we, we just love talking about the X Men. So. I'll never forget the day that the book came. This this book came, and I, Justin was like. It was like, bye, Justin. See you later. Like instantly, just like sitting and like just going through every page. But then every other, every other page, she was like, hey, what's uh, hey, what's that? What's what are you that? looking at? What's that over there? It's very interesting. It's a good read. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You guys have been great. Um, you know, maybe we'll get to talk to you again someday at a comic con. In at the a comic con. <laughs> East Coast Comic Con in Boston or New York or Rhode Island, wherever oh, it happens yeah. to be. Yeah. Yes, that will be fantastic. Sounds great. Until next time, old friend. Charles! Thanks so much for joining us today on the Ex-Wife Podcast. Be sure to leave us a review and tell your friends. The Ex-Wife Podcast is produced in Providence, Rhode Island by Alicia and Justin. 
music is by Quan. <laughs>